This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Feed me. Does it have to be human? Feed me. Does it have to be mine? Feed me. Where am I supposed to get it? Feed me Seymour. Feed me all night long. That's right, boy. Audrey, too? Let's face it, how am I supposed to keep on feeding you, kill people? I'll make it worth your while. Look, you're a plant. An inanimate object. Does this look inanimate to you, punk? If I can talk and I can move, who's to say I can't do anything I want? Like what? Like deliver, pal. Like see you get everything your secret, greasy heart desires. <laughs> Would you like a Cadillac car? Okay, Mihi Nomen Est, Stella, at Hawk S. Backworld Oracle, The Barber Burden Podcast, episode 230 for February MMXXIII. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, full disclosure, I'm I'm not in like the best of moods to record this podcast. I kept kind of pushing it off and pushing it off, but here we are. The show had to go on. But I think after 13 years and over 229 episodes that my audience knows that I don't really uh, BS you or pretend around it, but 
yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna push on. So my levels might be flat, but uh, I, I will say though that all of the comments that I made on the issues were in advance of you know what I'm feeling today. So I overall thought that these issues were kind of lackluster. So my feelings are not being projected onto that. But you know, fingers crossed that 2024 will be my year. It's it's been a time. I will, if I were to say one thing that's been troublesome, I will say that I have one grad class this year, one of the two that is just plain nuts. It's just plain nuts. So nuts in fact that week three, week three, we had a 13 page exam worth 15% of the whole score of the, the class. So that was interesting. We were given 10 days to complete it. It took me roughly seven hours to do everything. I mean, it was basically all free response with some exceptions. So, I mean, that's just, that's just an example, but you know, poor Harry, every time I play a video game with him, I have to bewail or bemoan what's going on in this particular class. But just to give you an example, I'm just trying to make it, just trying to get my grad degree. But this, that by far, or this by far, is probably the worst class I've ever taken. I would say it's not the workload, but that is also an issue. But what is actually expected and how it's managed. So once I finish the course, perhaps I'll give you a bigger picture. But since people in my grad degree class all know that I podcast, maybe I'll keep it to me, uh, to myself for right now. But yeah, fingers crossed 2024 might be my year. Who even knows? So we're just going to we're going to push on through and, and produce a podcast. And if you're watching, apologies for the wet hair. But I did just go on a run outside and I bet. Yeah. What's with this weather? Now, people might be like, oh, you know, 70s, 80 degrees, Virginia, February. This is beautiful for me. It makes me sick because I want it to be freezing. I want there to be some sort of blizzard. Now, for everyone who's receiving a blizzard at this moment, I hope that everyone is safe. But I, I do wish we had some sort of snowfall. Maybe blizzard is too extreme. But anyways, yes, I did go on a run. I'm somewhat, I, February has been much better in terms of my goal of working out five out of seven days a week and, and taking pictures and things like that and, and becoming less self-conscious and more loving of, of my body. So getting better, but we'll, we'll keep on. We'll try to do even better in March. And like I said, I think I said when Chag was on that I'm considering, which I probably should just lay the money down so that now there's a financial investment doing a half marathon up in Cape Cod. So visit my friend, if you want to call him that, right round and the mayor and, and that family again and run 13.1 miles for funsies. But that that might be my goal. So that's October. So finding my joy, Shag's mac and cheese of comfort and joy. I don't know if I spoke about this. So we're hitting uh, Oscar season, Academy Awards. I think I spoke about this with Shag. And I, of course, try to watch all the best pictures. Not interested in Avatar 2, to be honest. So I won't waste my time with that. And boy, if that wins best picture, I'll be sick compared to all the other ones. But I did see women talking couple weeks ago with a friend of mine, and I highly, highly, highly recommend, of course, trigger warning in terms of sexual assault and rape and continuous rape. 
perpetuated upon this community was just so good and, and and so compelling in the fact that it literally is women talking, but you are so engaged for that entire time. You don't feel the runtime at all, which is, I think, below two hours anyways. But you know how sometimes you can feel like, oh, wow, this has kind of gone on for a bit, but definitely not with that. So I highly recommend that. And I'll have to soon fill out my Oscar picks so I can go up against Heath Bar again for... Is this the fourth year in a row? And we'll see what I have yet to pick my wager, uh, what book I would get him to read if if I win. But I'm yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I have one last best picture to watch, which is All Quad on the Western Front. And I know that's such an upper. So I'm kind of preparing myself for that. Watch Triangle of Sadness with Harry. That was a ridiculous film. And I do want to see After Sun. And to Leslie, but those are both, I mean, they're not best pictures, but they're involving the Academy Awards. And I like Paul Mescal anyways. And of course, to Leslie has an interesting storyline. And then on the outside of it, that's all very interesting as to what's going on with uh, voting and sort of looking for votes and things like that. I did in January go and see Kimberly Akimbo with Ellie and Claire, former students, now friends. And that was great spending a couple days. Like we did a kind of a full weekend. I haven't really done, I don't, gosh, when's the last time I really did? Well, I guess in the spring when I was with Don and Josh. But yeah, we went up there Friday by train, had Saturday, saw the show, Kimberly on Saturday evening, had all Sunday, and then we left on Monday. We ran. I made the girls run, which Claire's running a half marathon in Virginia Beach in March. So she was already training, but Ellie's like, I can't believe this. Who comes up to New York and wants to run? I think it's fun, especially like New York. I just love the idea of like running the streets and running past and, and seeing all these things or going to a park. And we did go to Central Park starting at Columbus Circle and ran around there. And that's, ah, it's just really fun. I really want to run across the Brooklyn Bridge. I walked across it one year with my mom. I went to go visit Gerard and I'd love to run across it. But yeah, it's just fun to run in a different city. And, and I really love New York City. So that was fun for me and something that that would be an idea of fun that I would have. And Kimberly Kimball was so good, so beautiful, heartwarming, had its serious and poignant moments as well. And yeah, I recommend that. And that's about a 16-year-old girl who has a fictitious disease, an aging disease. So it looks like she is 70 years old and she's played by the marvelous Victoria Clark, whom I love, especially because of Light in the Piazza, which is my favorite Broadway musical. And she was really good. The family dynamics, the aunt certainly steals the the show and Seth is really fun and the kids having their own issues and trying to navigate friendships and family, all that stuff. So highly recommend maybe giving something a listen. Uh, it takes place in Jersey. So it's really funny going on the train past Jersey stops. It would have Kimberly Akimbo is like, Jersey finally gets its like official musical, uh, which is a lot of fun, but yeah, so I think that's certainly, I guess that would be my find my joy segment. So review wise, we're back to back row. Remember kind of the plan of this show as we continue on is really alternating episodes between back row and birds of prey. So here we are the last time out. Remember, I really, really let go and let loose on back row number 50 with all those problems. So we're now containing 
ourselves and our emotions. And we're going to get into back roll 51 and 52. Like I said, not so much of like a jaw dropping or really fun ride for me, but here we are. 51, the subtitle is The City is a Garden. If you are watching, you can see we have Cass got this beautiful cover, really. She looks like she might be comatose in the process of falling backwards, and she is being caught by some giant leaves, and some flowers are wrapping around her. And I actually had no idea that we're going to have some poison ivy action in this just by looking at the cover and looking at 52. I was like, oh, poison ivy. So I was happy to see poison ivy, who is, of course, I shouldn't say, of course, but she is my favorite Batman villain, I would say. So, The City is a Garden, June 2004 is the cover date. Writer, Dylan Horrocks, penciler, Eric Battle, inker, Nathan Messengill, and colorist, Jason Wright. There is a massive car chase between the GCPD and a gang of thugs. They drive dangerously close to a homeless man who is obsessed with riding on the streets in chalk. The thugs cause a police car to veer off and flip over by shooting it with shotgun shells. Batgirl swoops in and rescues the homeless man. Batman pops the thug's tires with a batarang and takes him down himself. Batgirl asks the homeless man what he is doing with the chalk, and the homeless man explains that it is a map of the perfect city. Batgirl later asks Batman who the homeless person was, and Batman replies that he's just an old man who should be in the hospital. Batman explains that the man was not drawing a map of the real Gotham City, but the perfect Gotham City as it appears in his head. He draws this map life-size everywhere he goes because he wants to make his Gotham real, and some nights Batman wishes that he could. Arturo Rodriguez and Emily James report on an art installation being unveiled in Crime Alley. The artist Chris Colson received a, I wonder if he's related to Agent Colson, received a grant from the Wayne Foundation to make a large piece of environmental art. Oracle visits Cassandra Kane's new apartment for the first time. Barbara exclaims that this is much better than Cassandra's cave, and Cassandra insists that she liked the cave. Cassandra begins using strange, old-timey slang. Yes, I'll get into that. And Barbara is confused. Cassandra explains that she's trying to learn how to talk like a regular person by watching the television. Barbara tells her that nobody on TV talks like a normal person. Cass puts on a nice new dress for the art opening. She doesn't want to go, but Barbara tells her she might as well enjoy it. Barbara says that it's important for Cass to spend time in the sunlight every day and try to appreciate things like art. The artist Chris Colson tries a hit on Cassandra at the opening ceremony. He does this by badmouthing Bruce Wayne as a vapid airhead, and he's very embarrassed to learn that Cassandra and Bruce are close friends. Bruce delivers which, if I'm to flip to that particular page, because of course I'm going to talk about potential romantic aspects between Bruce and Cassandra. The way that he grabs her, looks at her, leads her away, it's a little suspicious. Lost my place now. So Bruce delivers a speech explaining that he funded the project so that there would be a symbol of beauty and growth in Crime Alley. They open the installation, and it's revealed that Coulson transformed two blocks into a massive garden. There is an air of tranquility and overwhelming natural aromas. This makes Bruce uncomfortable, and he excuses himself. I also want to flip to that particular page. If we look at how he reacts, look at him. He really is uncomfortable. I have to leave. I have some work to do. It's very interesting. Okay. 
Colson explains to reporters that he recreated the Garden of Eden. This is a place where there are no rule, rules or social order or inhibitions or guilt. The people around him seem to be communing with nature, engaging in physical intimacy, and even disrobing. Colson asks Cassandra what she thinks, and she asks what he's done to these people. Colson tells her that the garden is doing it, not him. They're about to kiss, but the homeless man arrives and interrupts them. He continues drawing with his chalk and insists that this is all wrong. Cass runs out of the garden. Barbara asks, where Cassandra is going and Cass replies work. Colson listens to a strange voice that tells him to let her go. The voice says, I am your muse. Backrow patrols the streets that night and fights random unexplained ninjas and stuff. This is what the wiki page says. Eventually, she follows Sirens back to the garden, which is now surrounded by police. The people who made it out explain that everything started out wonderful. However, when night fell, the people inside turned into snarling, vicious monsters. There are children still trapped inside, and something is jamming the police communications. Backrow glides into the garden to investigate. Okay, so yeah, the fact that Babs... Oh my gosh, look at this. People frolicking a near kiss. Why are we doing this to Cassandra is always that. And then Babs got out of her chair and there's a blanket there. She's laying down and she's not concerned at all. So we should be concerned because Barbara is not concerned. Okay, 52, the city is a jungle. And what I'm going to do is recap both of them and then talk about the story as a whole. As we see with this particular cover, Poison Ivy is revealed Cass seems to be struggling. Uh, the words say, that girl is poison. Wah, wah. Okay. July 2004 is the cover date. And the, I was going to say the same creative team, but no, writer Dylan Horrocks, pencilers Rick Leonardi, inkers Jesse Delperdang, and colorist Jason Wright. The citizens of Gotham City wake up inside an enormous garden taking over the buildings. They begin happily communing in this environment. Poison Ivy is revealed to be responsible, having taken advantage of artist Chris Colson. Colson is horrified to realize what Ivy has turned the garden into. Ivy tells him that she was just using him as a way to get resources from the Wayne Foundation through their artistic grants. Ivy decides that Colson is now redundant and leaves him hanging from a tree. Batgirl enters the heart of the garden near Crime Alley and is immediately attacked by Oracle. Look at this particular scene. Look at this. Leaping out. Oh, my goodness. In these poses. I've got some things to say about that. Oracle tries to kill Batgirl under the influence of Ivy's pheromones. Donovan may say, so she says, and maybe she's not. But gosh, you know, <laughs> nearly two issues in a row. Someone's trying to kill Batgirl and blame it on some chemicals. Anyways, Batgirl makes Oracle pass out and drags her outside. She ends up putting her underwater and almost drowns her, I guess. Is that because do you consider that passing, making her pass out? Anyways, this clears Oracle's head. Oracle explains that the garden started out wonderful, but everybody went insane at night. So everything we've heard before, the flowers give off a powerful scent that turns people into vicious animals. Oracle is taken away by a medic and Batgirl returns to the garden with a rebreather. Batgirl battles her way through the garden until she finds Chris Colson. Colson explains that Ivy approached him shortly after he received his financial grant from the Wayne Foundation. She told him that she would be his muse and plotted the garden as his next artistic installation. He didn't realize that she would use the flowers as a mind-altering narcotic to brainwash people. Ivy stands in the center of the garden at her tree of knowledge, giving fruit to people. Batgirl swoops in and kicks Poison Ivy in her face. Ivy tells Batgirl that no matter what she does, the garden will spread beyond God 
them and throughout the land. Ivy ties Batgirl up in vines and tells her followers to kill Batgirl. Batgirl tosses an explosive at the Tree of Knowledge, destroying the garden and ruining its effect on people, and Ivy collapses in tears. Batman arrives in the Batplane and explains that he's been away on JLA business, which is hogwash poison ivy angrily says that his girlfriend ruined everything there's that and batman tells her that he and becker are just friends my word poison ivy makes a last ditch attempt to kiss batman and control him but he tells her not tonight which is actually kind of funny i would say um you could take it badly but also you could be like well he has fallen for that before Batgirl swings through the city later she sees a homeless man who's still drawing his map of the perfect gotham city and she smiles which is interesting that she smiles at that, if only because, you know, is is it fruitless? Because how Batman perceives it is like it's almost frustrating that he's clearly, you know, ill, but he also has this ideal imagining of what Gotham City should be. And that's sad for Batman because he would love for that to be true, but it's not. Uh, but maybe Batgirl is like, well, things are back to normal. And this guy, maybe, maybe she has hope that Gotham City will become what it should become so as i said poison ivy is probably my favorite batman villain quote unquote i know that there are certainly times that she's an anti-hero or perhaps even a hero and i feel like the story did have some strong potential but i'm not really sure that it reached it i do wonder what ivy's motivations are but it seems like a silly question given you know her motivations are generally the same but this story gets a bit more complicated in terms of how the people are reacting to her creation slash Colson's creation. Why is there a violent aspect to her version of paradise? Everything is great and utopic during the, the during the day, but then she allows and even condones the rules of nature to take over at night. It both seems to align and doesn't seem to align with what she's trying to do. Like she wants her garden to take over Gotham. And wouldn't she want everyone to live in harmony with nature? But living in harmony with nature is almost the ideal, like the biblical setting of Garden of Eden. It's like before the fall, everyone was in harmony, you know, the lion laying down with the lamb situation. And then after the fall, well, now we have we brought violence into it. And now we are using plants and animals, killing them in order to survive, things like that. So it's interesting that this is called the Garden of Eden, but it's not necessarily, I see it and I, and I don't see it. And so this is where it's confusing because I think she could have gone one way. Now, if she just really wants people to, be communing with nature i don't know why their violent natures come out at night shouldn't they be all you know they should be having sex and killing people in the middle of the day because it's not like lionesses are only hunting at night that sort of thing ivy has the power to offset all of the violence so again i, I don't know necessarily why she would want to perpetuate the violence. 
Plus, I feel like even allowing a little free will to the people within this garden could destroy her beauties. And we know that she loves them above all else. So that's why I'm just kind of confused on motivations and and what is going on. Now, is this story just a biblical lesson or is it an idea or the idea that the perfect society will just never exist? And is this a way, is this something that continues to frustrate Batman, that Gotham City will never be perfect? I then would wonder why is Cass looking at the homeless man at the end and smiling because to me it might be like, oh, well, maybe that should be like a forlorn or a sad look because she also recognizes that a perfect society does not exist. And so she'd feel similarly to Batman. I'm not sure. I do like the homeless man. I I think that there's something special that he represents. I think he's a great addition to the story, even though he only pops up in these certain areas. I think it's a really interesting idea that what he is doing and how it relates to Batman and Batgirl And I think helping Batgirl maybe understand Batman in a different way as well. Uh, We have this one tree that rules them all, you know, kind of like a ring. So destroying that uh, disrupts what Ivy is doing. So that's similar to the Tree of Knowledge, which she, of course, calls it the Tree of Knowledge. So we do have lots of biblical connections. So if I go back to 51... And in my synopsis, I said that Cass is saying some weird stuff. And this is kind of a weird scene, which Donovan, uh, I'll be using the H word soon. First of all, how many things can I pull up on this one page? First of all, Cass saying, you bet, you bet, you sweet patootie, baby. (laughs) And Bab says, what did you just say? And then she's about to repeat. She's a little shocked. And she's like, Bab's just like, no, please don't. So that's one thing I'll pull off from this page. Second thing I'll pull off is just, I don't know why we are sexualizing. I won't even say over-sexualizing. I think just sexualizing, period. Cass? Cass is just a character that I I don't think of as like a sexual being. Like, I don't, I would prefer to not see her in a towel. I think objectively she is a beautiful young woman, but why are we doing this? Why? Why? And then she puts on this dress. Bab says, nice dress. Where'd you get it? And Cass says it was in the closet. And well, she doesn't know. So it's interesting, this dress. It's not too scandalous. I mean, the back is somewhat open. But the fact that, you know, Babs is kind of, I guess maybe I retract what I'm saying in this, in, in my notes here. But yeah, who is getting these clothes for her? And then Babs is... I was thinking on a first reading that she was kind of judging the dress, but it's not as bad as the bikini because I was going to say, oh, isn't she a hypocrite because she got her that bikini? But no, I guess she's probably happy with what she's wearing, actually. So it was a bad first reading when I did this. So Cass is, so we've got the towel, we've got this dress. We have random guys now fawning all over her. And now it could be me again, right? So caveat, but what I've been seeing and associating this book, Batman and Batgirl, uh, there seems to be a lot of shipping here b- between Bruce and Cass, not only in how he first greets her, as I showed before, that's very interesting, but how Ivy later on labels them as being together, which is weird. I can't stop thinking about Bruce running out of the garden, feeling uncomfortable. Wouldn't that be 
interesting, it, interesting as in makes me uncomfortable and sick, but if he was thinking about Cassandra in a particular way and that made him feel very com- uncomfortable and then he ran out. And this is backed up by the fact that Cass nearly kisses this artist. So something, obviously people are, are disrobing and having some sexy time, but you know things are being pushed beyond a normal degree in this garden. So I can back up that. Cass also runs out of the garden in clear distress because she doesn't like what type of person she's becoming. Though, you know, one wonders if this was only because of the kiss or if she would not feel content if she lived in a utopia because she feels there's no end to the mission like Batman or she just feels uncomfortable in this situation. I don't even know. Why is Batman lying about being away on JLA, JLA business? He he runs out. So it's something that made him so uncomfortable that he ran out, was gone for however long, and came back and lied about it after everything was cleaned up. He didn't even come back to help or bring back a rebreather like she did. So that's that's a bit strange. And then, yeah, I already mentioned the not this time. So Babs, I didn't particularly like how she was used in the story, which should shock no one. But she was just, I mean, it was fun for her to be with Cass. But then she, of all people, doesn't think that this is a little weird, that people are doing this kind of stuff. And maybe Babs is feeling a certain way as well. I don't know. And then also, I think that her body, if I may be blunt or so bold, her body is given way too much credit in this particular fight scene mainly because I think her legs would probably be flapping uh, about uncontrollably as she swings. And I'm thinking about Birds of Prey number eight, that her legs were tied together as she was on the trapeze with Dick. And so here we have like her bending the legs and able to swing on a vine. I feel like this is not, this would not be possible given her current um, abilities. Well, we have Cass go up against a high-tier Batman foe and use her smarts to take her down, which is a lot of fun. Also, uh, who really wants to see Cass and Barbara fight? That's unfortunate. At least there's a hug and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, so the rebreather, again, you know, if Cass thought of it, you'd, you'd think that Batman would have thought of it, but I don't know. But she has to fight through everybody, protect that Coulson guy. Gosh, Forgot to mention that Ivy is practically naked as well. And then, yeah, take down Ivy. But the easiest way is to go to the center of it all. So uses her smarts, takes down a, I don't know, would you say that Ivy was maybe B-level? Or a, I don't know what you would consider an A-level Batman, like an A-tier. I feel like she's, you know, top of the rogues, but maybe people would say she's like a B-level. But she's pretty powerful. I don't know that her lipstick can work on women, but I could be wrong. But any, all that to say, good job, Cass, taking down Poison Ivy. And then it just seems like, hey, we're back to business as usual with Batman after 50. So things are the same. I don't know, better, the same, or just neutral and... Hopefully there won't be any other fights or we've reached the status quo. Now everyone seems to be in a healthy state. Okay. So I think I'm going to give this 7.5 out of 10 utopias. I like poison Ivy. The idea of this garden is interesting. I just stopped sharing, but this artist transplants forms 
like building forms from one culture to another. And the other two examples were like a coast. I couldn't figure out this one. It was like a coast or something or like the Mediterranean around Tropic Paradise, around the Eiffel Tower. And then I can't remember. Oh, St. Louis Arch. Under the St. Louis Arch, he like put some like a building from either Iran or Iraq. And part of me was thinking, what what is that? Like, I guess it's good that you are exposing people to a different culture. But of all the things to transplant, but this actually, this art installation, I thought was really cool and how it looked and the fact that it's taking up a couple city blocks and it's supposed to be really beautiful. I mean, without the the evil tree, I think that it could have been a really beautiful thing and potentially it'll still be there. It's just the the tree and ivy aren't there to govern everything. But yeah, I mean, it reminds me of No Man's Land when she took over, what was it, Roosevelt Park maybe? And I feel like zero year with Scott Snyder, there was stuff going down. There was a lot of flooding, but I feel like there was some sort of park. But you know, any place where there's greenery breaking through the cement, I think is like a tree grows in Brooklyn. I think that that is a beautiful thing. Okay. So yeah, like I said, I think there was potential. I'm confused about motivations and just like, oh, what is this area actually supposed to be? What does Ivy want it to be? And then just some weird moments. So it was okay. I do have some listener emails. Mail time. I see something from 227 part one from Spider Boy into Jesus. I don't know that I can or should defend this cast versus Batman story, but I will defend Batman himself. This just goes back to what I've been saying about this era for a while. Batman is being written poorly here. This is simply a bad interpretation of his character. In the best versions of Batman, you can see that while he generally has difficulty outwardly expressing it, he definitely does care about his family. This era of comics just has one of the worst interpretations of his character. I can sort of see where he's coming from saying that Cass needed it. While yes, I agree that the collateral damage was excessive. Remember, she was raised on violence. She was literally taught violence as a language. She's not a typical person by any means, so I don't think it's fair to compare her to your average person. Yes, she understands violence as a learning tool more than everyone else. As for the sexual connotations, I think you're a little out of line. It's not completely outrageous. I do see where you're coming from, especially after the fiasco in the Killing Joke movie and then a a sick emoticon. However, I think it's a bit harder to see that separated from the Killing Joke movie scene. Fights often end up in grappling, and I don't think that's particularly sexual. Sure, it can be, but you can find plenty of historical manuals showing people grappling in a life or death fight, and I can pretty much guarantee you that there's no sexual connotation there unless the participants are completely perverts. (laughs) It's kind of hard to grapple without some kind of straddling. That's just how grappling works. Uh, which, uh, yeah, I totally get, you know, I've seen some MMA stuff and some wrestling and things like that. So I 
I get it. 227, part one, also from Spider Boy into Jesus. There's a very good point about her just not understanding emotions up to this point. I'm just getting this story secondhand through the podcast as I never read this run. That and I often fall behind. So some time passes between episodes. So the story has been very broken up for me. Anyway, totally agree with all that. Poor interpretation of Batman. And that Cass was just confused about emotions and figuring them out. Also, that's... Also likely that they were a bit high from the gas or whatever. It's a shame that Babs didn't similarly figure out her relationship with Batman in the Killing Joke movie, Sick Face. Although I'm much more disappointed with Batman in that scene personally. And then part two, also from Spider Boy into Jesus, the use on the cover is a contraction of you and is. Which one of you's going to die? Which one of you is going to die? Oh, I say... Because I thought, which one of you is going to die? Which is not the best grammar, perhaps, but not the same as the slang for plural you. I'd say it's pretty common in everyday speech, though. Which one of you's? That's interesting. Whenever I think about gangsters saying that, I'm thinking like plural you's. Which one of you is going to die? 229 part. Ooh. Yeah. Two tw- oh, Hornacek. Back or Hornacek. Uh, Donovan says garrulous, a good word for 229. And then Hornacek has returned. It was funny to hear you read from the from that quote-unquote source saying that the Batgirls book was intended for the, quote, younger female viewers of the DC Superhero Girl series, end quote. And then see the screenshot of the cover of the latest issue with the rating for 13 plus on the left corner. Have all issues of this book had the rating? If so, then there is some miscommunication at DC. Shocker, I know. While the DC Superhero Girls show can be enjoyed by all ages, its target audience is definitely pre-teens, or am I wrong? No, no, you're not wrong. And I think I also saw that like very blatantly out there. I don't know if it was that issue maybe, but that was that was pretty funny. So I'm glad that you picked up on it and mentioned that. And then my last comment is an email from Earth to BFF. Shana. So this is on episode 229. BFF Stella, thank you for your kind words last episode. If my own recovery has taught me anything, it's that sometimes you just got to take it one a day at a time. Smiley face emoticon. Sensei and student is a fun arc. I love how Simone builds on what she has written previously. It makes her issues feel full and well thought out. She has a direction, even if it isn't immediately apparent to the reader. To me, it makes absolute sense that Dinah would be willing to give Shiva a chance and trust her in this arc. Dinah has always been the heart of the birds of prey. Sure, it gets her in trouble sometimes, but her empathy for others empathy, has been a trait consistent in her since Chuck Dixon's run. I also would like to know who took that picture of Nightwing and Babs making out. I know who was there. And also why Barbara has it framed and on display. She likes remembering hot makeout scenes, I guess. As for Backrolls number 14, it was a really beautiful issue. I was a little let down by Steph's letter, though. I thought there might be something more to it, but maybe there is more to see next issue. <laughs> And then uh, she follows up by saying, I am also a big fan of muttering Amor Fati over and over to myself when life gets rough. Uh, maybe you are familiar. Yeah. Calling out to anything and everything like, dear Lord, why? But yes, uh, that is a good shout out. And I appreciate the, the Latin for sure. 
Oh, back rolls. Yeah. You and I on the same page, of course, with that letter and thinking it was going to be something else, but there we are. Okay. Well, that is it for part one to clean up my listener emails. When I come back, I'm going to cover some modern quickies featuring Nightwing. I'll probably talk about them very quickly and maybe show just a couple scenes and then do a full review of Batgirl's number 15. I had to be sure that was the number. Yes, Batgirl's 15. Uh, but first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring You First by Paramore. See you soon. <laughs> I'll do better when you 
So we're going to be looking at some quickies, but focus on back rolls 15 and focus is a bit of a generous word there, but gosh, I've been skipping lots of night wings. So I just need to catch up. And unfortunately I didn't get the most recent one in time. So I'm still behind, but here we have the annual, the publisher synopsis says who is heartless find out who the villain is behind the platinum mask and why he only collects the hearts of some victims and not others and why he has no heart himself. Then bite wing year one, follow Haley in her first year with her humans, Nightwing and Batgirl and see how she takes a bite out of crime in her first year becoming bite wing. I will say the other, and there's a beautiful story with Dick and John Kent as well, but bite wing is fun just because this is what bite wing, uh, well, Haley gets up to when she's left alone. She has imaginings that her owners are kidnapped by all of Batman's rogues. <laughs> And she ends up helping them out. Now, something that we do learn from them or from this issue is that Barbara at times sends Scandy photos to Dick Grayson because she sent a photo. He said, what am I looking at? And she said a picture of what I'm wearing under this overcoat. And then because then he starts immediately changing. So Barbara didn't know you had it in you. But here we go. So that was the annual 99. So it's not just me. The publisher synopses are wacky. They are wacky. It says something about the Titans, but th- no, the, the whole story is about uh, Melinda Zuko, basically. And the big thing is that she becomes uh, Grayson officially. So and her father's behind bars, question mark, I think, or he breaks out and then. I think Heartless makes a deal with him. Yeah. So Babs is in N99. With 100, which was an oversize, the publisher synopsis says, come join us with big smiles and even bigger celebrations as Nightwing hits his milestone issue number 100. Cheer how far we've come by looking through the decades at what has made Nightwing a beloved hero, which of course was like five pages of his different outfits. What better way to celebrate than with familiar friends and artists? Then, with Heartless creating a lair in the heart of Bloodhaven to take Blockbuster's throne, Nightwing will follow suit, setting up a headquarters of his own with the help of some friends who helped make him who he is now, of course. So, Oracle, actually, this might be here that Zuko and Heartless are together, so not in the previous one. But anyways, Oracle offers assistance on the mission, and there's a moment with the three of them course melinda's there as well uh looking out there over the city and and what can they do and at the very end after melinda leaves he asks both Haley and babs to change the world with him which is great and then the previous page where i was i really love this moment where they're at alfred's grave I, apparently for the first time together in just this beautiful moment here and then later, later on he says i love you dad which i thought was really nice so i 
recommend, of course, reading Nightwing. But now let us get into Batgirls number 15, Dead Wrong, which I keep reading as Dead Wong. And I don't know where I've gotten that. I feel like it's an episode from something. Dead Wong. You are dead. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if you can remind me of what that is, because I think it's a pop culture reference on something. B.D. Wong, you're you're dead Wong. I don't know. Anywho, here we are. Backrolls 15. Will it live up to Backrolls 14? No, it won't. Story, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, Art Neil Googe and Colors, Rico Renzi. Yes, my synopsis is actually the publisher's synopsis, and then I'll add a little bit to it. But honestly, not too much happens. So here's a publisher's synopsis. There's nothing like some father-daughter bonding unless you're Stephanie Brown and you thought your father was dead until he kidnapped you. At least your BFF Cassandra Cain's determined to find you. It's a deadly adventure for Cass, but nothing can stop her from risking it all to save Steph unless it's death itself. So Arthur is looking for some honest responses and getting Steph to admit her, this is me, admit her feelings about him and herself. And he shocks her with electricity if she doesn't respond how he wants her to. The cabin is booby-trapped. Steph punches her dad out. He blows up part of the cabin and then accidentally shoots Steph when he was aiming for Cass. And he, because Steph is dead, literally, uh, he nearly kills himself, but Cass stops him. So Steph does die, but Cass, who, of course, took a couple vials filled with the Lazarus serum, ends up dispersing that serum to Steph and she awakens and it's explained that because she didn't die that long ago, Steph doesn't become a nutter, basically. Arthur gets put into Arkham Tower and he is asked for help in catching Jervis Tetch, aka Mad Hatter, maybe even a clue, but he says that's not him anymore. And then at the very end, the girls gather on the roof and bond and there is a bloody statue with a letter that is left at Grace O'Halloran's apartment. So this cover here is Steph. There's an image that she would not have drawn when she was a child because she didn't know Cass, but pretending that she did, she is ripping that up because she her relationship with her father is no more. He's dressed as Clue Master and she's dressed as Batgirl. And she is, yeah, kidnapped by Daddy Dears. And there it is, 13 plus teen. So maybe it's because, for a sec, maybe I just didn't scroll down far enough. I don't even know. But honestly, yeah, this uh, we we come off the highest of highs in 14 and we go to this which it just seems like not a lot happens. Like, you know, could this be women talking? Maybe. It's father-daughter talking, but I don't know. I guess I just wanted something more. Like it is it's a it's an emotion-filled issue. That's what we're getting through. What is the relationship between Arthur and his daughter? What, you know, how does he truly feel about her? How does she truly feel about him? And and also, is she honest with herself and things like that? Now, I did some like cursory research because the fact that he is electrocuting her, which it looks humorous here, but I felt like he's never actively harmed her before now psychological damage is one thing but like physical damage and i even went through like you know these appearances and things and he's done things he almost threw some acid into her face until was it robin revealed 
that it was Steph because he didn't know that it was her. But all the time, he he has not laid a hand on her. Now, she in a previous in a previous time, like pre New Fifty Two, has punched him out. So her violence on him has happened. Perhaps is warranted, though. Is any violence really warranted? But he's never gone to this extreme, and so I wonder if if we've captured the actual relationship between the two of them and this issue just didn't feel like what I would have expected it to feel. Are the writers trying to really make it parallel with Cass and Shiva? Though initially that was Steph fighting Shiva. And then, you know, they kind of had a a heart to heart when it was actually Cass. Uh, But there was no violence involved in that. Like, could they not have an actual conversation and Steph does admit things that I think we believe to be true, that she does see some of him in herself. And of course, he tries to get her to admit that, that she does deep down still love him. But, you know, he is he's pretty messed up. Right. But I, yeah, I don't know. And like having it with this this game show, why he won't tell her how he came back to I don't know what the point is. Like, we just tell her now the only thing that I can say that could explain this whole issue and how he is acting is of course the Lazarus pit, but I hate how easy that is just because it's like, yeah, you know, it's just one answer that clears everything up. Whereas I think the writing should speak for itself and and explain why he's acting like this, but yeah, you know, he's thrown in the Lazarus pit who knows how long he was dead. We know that people come back and they're nuts when they come back. And so here we have it, but I don't know how long he's been alive. Could that, insanity have worn off i don't he he just seems overly violent but if if that's how we want to explain it then sure but otherwise it's just i don't necessarily recognize this relationship i think it's fraught and it's not a healthy relationship but i think having that violence enter in just seems just seems too much i I think that's my sticking point is just um i feel like he's never laid a hand on her physically so i don't know it just is like this the sticking point for me but yeah no it's just this weird game show he's asking her questions he's like beating her it's like he's very abusive in this so if he had caused psychological trauma in the past with things i feel like he still loved her and and he wouldn't I just don't think that he would go to this extreme to make all this happen. I mean, he's a madman. Look at this page that he's yelling and she's crying. It's nuts. Even David Kane, like if we were to compare David Kane's relationship with Cass, my gosh, is it the same? Is it better? Is it worse? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we are trying to make it more similar to that. And have that uh, abuse, that scene as love put in there. Because he's just trying to compel her to to tell him the truth that he knows. Yeah, I don't know. So I felt like it was a lackluster issue. I, I guess I can't really get my thoughts too much in order. But I'm just kind of stumped by the violence. And it just didn't feel right. I think if it were... You know, other characters maybe. If there had been pre-established physical violence between the characters i but it just i for some reason it's just a stopping point for me and it just seems like a very weird and contrived thing this whole situation whereas we could have i don't know could have had 
a conversation, but I guess we can't have a normal conversation with this guy. Uh, so Cass breaks in, obviously, and I don't know why it's rigged to blow. He's like, no one's going to come out. Well, there's all these booby traps as if he knew. I don't know how no one else is getting hit by the syringes and, and all of that stuff. And then who's he trying to hit exactly? Blowing something up. I'm confused. Like, how did you? I guess it was a controlled explosion. So he knew it was just going to be this part of the house. But it just seems like he is nuts. And then he's like, no one's no one's leaving until I say it's over. And well, I mean, threatening with a gun and shooting the gun are two different things. And then of course she saves Cass. <sighs> And then he's like, oh, no. So you can actually see, you know, he loves her so much. He can't believe that this has happened. And now he's going to end it. But she stops him. And then, yeah, we actually see Steph die, which, of course, we saw by pretend in, gosh, what is she was at? Like five or six way back when with Bongo. She did. D-E-D dead. And then the Lazarus serum. But we are told i can't remember where we saw this oh okay so we're told on this page that arthur was dead for three days so three days resurrected and then who knows how long he's been did he immediately after his resurrection go after steph i guess i wouldn't uh put it past him uh and then yeah we have purple boxes i think that's the only time we say them uh, we have a shipper moment potentially on this motorcycle between Steph and Cass that they saved each other, which is a beautiful moment. And then I guess Arthur's given up the game. It would have been interesting actually to see Steph go a bit nuts after the serum, but I wish I could find it to prove what I'm talking about here. But the fact that she had died so recently and then Cass administered it is why she's not going nuts. But I wonder what a nuts Stephanie Brown would be like. I guess I'll find out soon with war games. So, oh, and then this Rachel Halloran, whatever is going on here. She's got an eye patch now. Who even knows what's going on? Read me. Who knows? But next up, a very important date. So, yeah, I, I guess I just don't it's almost like I just don't have a lot to say about this particular issue. I think it was built up a great deal. I think the Shiva and Cass were not perfect. That was interesting to see those two and, and as well as Shiva and, and Steph. But you didn't really get to see anything between Cass and Arthur to see what that would have been like to have that role reversal. And then this was just nuts. And it just didn't. It just didn't feel right. I will say in my cursory, and, and if I'm wrong, please, yeah, give me examples of when he may have committed a violent, physically violent act against Steph. I would love to hear it. But in my research of that, I also noticed that Red or Prenew 52 was involved. I can't remember what the exact details were, but either he was he knew where Clue Master was and wouldn't tell Steph or was like offering to give her a clue or something like that. So I'm like, oh, wow, it really comes full circle. Or perhaps these writers were looking back and, and seeing what he had been doing. So, yeah, let me know what you have to say about that one. I, I feel like it's pretty forgettable. Uh, I guess the positives are, I was about to move on without even rating it, but I guess the positives are that we get to know a little bit more about Steph and what Steph thinks of herself. So it is, gosh, we really are pushing Stephanie Brown as <laughs> the main character almost, but we 
think she's finally honest with herself, which is good. And so perhaps this will be a big character moment for her and, and really growth. But we need to see, like with all things, what the result of this is. So if this happens, but it just happens in a vacuum, then that's poor storytelling. So how does she continue on from that? And then, of course, the girls, I think, are even more bonded than ever, given what has gone down, that they switched bodies, that they both nearly died for each other, and uh, they saved each other. So I'll be generous and give it a, I mean, I don't think it's, I feel like the previous issues were better. So I'll give it seven out of 10 cup nudes. We'll see. Fingers crossed. I feel like we're we're moving on to a new arc, so let's let's start fresh and see what we can do as just a duo, because Barbara Gordon apparently is not in this book anymore. So there you go. Well, let us move on to, I believe my last thing is literature recommendations. Okay. So I think the last thing I talked about was Aliens Vasquez. I did read a couple romance novels. So a queer romance novel I read was The Flaw in Our Design by Monica McCallum. I then read Normal People by Sally Rooney. I had seen the Hulu series. The Hulu series is very closely adapting adapting this book. I want to read the book after I watch that show. That's where I found out about Paul Mescal, who's, I feel like, an amazing actor. So recommend that. Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmas. I was five stars, five stars, two thumbs up. Highly recommend this. It was witty, smart, love the main character, thoughtful, emotional, like kind of some twists too. But I was, I guess, over Thanksgiving, went home and my mom and I went to go see The Fablemans. And right before, went to Barnes & Noble to pick up a manga volume for my nephew. And there was this huge display about lessons in chemistry. And I like pick it up. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like it was hot now or something like that. And I think my mom offered to, to purchase this, but something happened. I can't remember what exactly it was, but ended up. Not, and I was like, no, no, don't worry about it. And then uh, just put it on my wish list or the hold in the library and loved it, loved it. So it's definitely worth that Barnes and Noble, what's hot situation. The Latinist by Mark Prince. That is going to be the next required reading. I hesitate to recommend it. I liked 90% of it. 10% of it was really frustrating. If you don't like stalkers or people doing things because they want you close to them, I wouldn't recommend it. If you like Ovid and Daphne and Apollo, that kind of gives you an idea of what that's about, then uh, give it a shot. Uh, Zami, A New Spelling of My Name by Audre Lorde. I was waiting so long, like years, I think, to to get this. It finally randomly came into the library. I kept checking and like, oh, it came in. And then I was the first one on the list. Oh, a, a Het uh, Romance, Wired by Julie Garwood. Julie Garwood is uh, probably one of the few romance authors that I've read the entire series on one of these. So this is one of the the Buchanan Renard series. The Whale by Samuel D. Hunter. I saw that movie and I saw this play when I went up at the drama bookstore at New York City. So I bought it. Then my final one that I just finished, Another Queer Romance, A Life Worth Living, again by Monica McCallum. Uh, she generally writes good ones. I mean, they're all, they all follow the same trope, honestly. So... I think that's it, or tropes, I should say, and kind of the 
a roadmap, like a similar roadmap that you could kind of flip to, you know, a certain percentage of the book and be like, okay, this is when the first kiss is going to be, then flip. Okay. They're going to get together here. Okay. Flip. They're going to break up because there's some sort of conflict. So it's, I generally know what's going on, but you know, the people are all new and the situations and everything. Okay. Well, remember you can send any questions or comments to backroll.oracle at gmail.com. Sorry if this was lackluster, but you know, we'll try to pep up for the next one and hopefully the comics can help me out that there as well. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backroll.oracle. Subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version. You can always comment on those videos. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backer the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?